Howdy, and welcome to episode 84 of Come and Take It. This week is a very special episode because we're talking about Sam Houston, the father of Texas. If you love Texas, or if you love the show, be sure to tell everyone you know to listen to this episode of Come and Take It, because for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the amazing life of Sam Houston, and I think it's a great way for you to get people interested in the show. And if you're just tuning in, howdy, we love Texas, and we know you do too. As a bonus, starting today, we're going to sell a limited edition t-shirt of Sam Houston in his amazing podcast glory. Please go to teespring.com slash texaspodcast to buy one of these limited edition t-shirts. So get them today while you can. And tell your friends, who, because if they love Texas, they're going to love this shirt. Without further ado, enjoy the show. It's quite literally a self-made yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go raise myself in the but, woods. I'll see you in five years. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Commander of the Texas Army, first president of the Republic of Texas, and a senator and governor, Sam Houston is arguably the most influential man in Texas history. But he was a giant figure long before he set foot in Texas. While overshadowed by his life in Texas, his early life in America had already made him a well-known historical figure. But first, what's your favorite Stevie Ray Vaughan song? My favorite Stevie Ray Vaughan song is Life by the Drop, which was on the Guys Crying album. Mm, Good song. My favorite Stevie Ray Vaughan song is uh, Pride and Joy, which was on Texas Flood. And every time I listen to that, I think of my wife. Well, they're all beautiful snowflakes, and I couldn't tell you which of my children is my favorite, but I will say that his cover of Little Wing by Jimi Hendrix is always amazing to listen to. From the city, to the university, to the giant statue, one only has to look at how much in Texas is named after Sam Houston to realize his importance. But like so many other heroes of the Texas Revolution, he was not born in Texas. Like those other men, Houston came here looking for a fresh start. He found a pace perfectly suited to his combination of skills with his knowledge of battle and his knowledge of politics. Sam Houston was born March 2, 1793 in Rockbridge County, Virginia to Major Samuel Houston and Elizabeth Paxton. The Houston family had been minor nobility in Scotland, but by 1735 they were in America and settled in Pennsylvania. As the state began to be filled by Lutheran Germans, Sam Houston's great-grandfather John moved south to Virginia's Shenandoah Valley with many other Scotch-Irish immigrants. John developed the land he bought in Virginia and passed it on to his son, Robert. Robert continued the life of a farmer and had five sons, the youngest of which was Samuel Houston. Little of Samuel's childhood is known, but as an adult during the American Revolution, he became a member of the 11th Virginia Regiment, specifically Morgan's Rifle Brigade. The regiment saw action at the Battle of Brandywine, the Battle of Germantown, and the Battle of Monmouth in the American Revolution. Samuel rose to the rank of major. Samuel and Elizabeth's nine children were born on the family plantation near Timber Ridge Church. The Sam Houston we know and love was the fifth of these children, and also the fifth son. In fact, the Houston's first six children were all boys, while the last three were girls. A building stands on the modern Timber Ridge Plantation, which is said to have been constructed from logs, salvaged from the cabin in which Sam Houston was born. Samuel seemed to have been a better soldier than a manager of money and land, and he ended up in debt. Like many other landowners at the time, 
he planned to leave his debts behind by moving to Tennessee, and he purchased land there in Maryville. However, he died in 1807 before he could enact the plan. Elizabeth followed, though, and moved herself and the children to Tennessee the same year. Sam was 14 at the time, and he attended a nearby academy. He augmented what he learned at school by reading classical literature, and he was particularly fond of the Iliad and the other classics. He also worked as a clerk at his older brother's store. After two dissatisfying years at the store, young Sam ran away from home. Houston headed southwest at 16 and began his lifelong friendship with the Cherokee Indians. He lived with the tribe on Hiwase Island, becoming something of a son to the tribe's chief, Ahuladegi, also known as John Jolly by the local white settlers. Jolly gave Houston the Cherokee name of Kolene, which means the raven, a name that would stick with him throughout his life. Houston became fluent in Cherokee and seems to have been fully integrated into the tribe. Sam didn't completely abandon his family back in Maryville, though, and he returned to visit them every few months. While visiting, he would borrow heavily from his brother's store and ran up a considerable debt. Eventually, he decided to return to his family and settle up. In 1812, at the young age of 19, Houston founded the first school to be built in Tennessee, a one-room schoolhouse situated between Maryville and Knoxville, and within a year, he'd paid back all his creditors. He wouldn't be a schoolteacher for long, though. War broke out between the U.S. and Great Britain in 1812, and Houston joined the Army as his father had done. He reported to a training camp in Knoxville and enlisted in the 39th Infantry Regiment. Houston proved himself to be just as good a soldier as his father had, and by December he'd risen in rank from private to a third lieutenant serving under Andrew Jackson in his campaign against the Creek Indians, who were allied to the British. During the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 1814, Houston was wounded in the groin by a Creek arrow. This didn't stop him, though, and after the wound was bandaged, he rejoined the fight. General Jackson called for volunteers to dislodge a group of Creek warriors from their fortification. Despite being wounded, Sam volunteered, and during the assault, he was further injured by being shot in the shoulder and arm. Houston returned to Maryville as a disabled veteran, but later took an offer by the Army for free surgery and spent his recovery time in a New Orleans hospital. It's a dubious benefit at the time. Free, free surgery. Hey, you got got shot (laughs) defending your country. Hey, we got some free surgery for you. Go down to the barber. Yeah. The story I always heard was that Houston actually, when he volunteered, Jackson ordered him not to go, and he went anyway. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard that too. Well, either way, it seems to have worked out for him. Houston's bravery impressed Jackson, and he became the younger man's mentor. Jackson appointed him as a sub-agent managing the removal of the Cherokee from eastern Tennessee to a reservation in Arkansas. This was a task that Houston was singularly suited to because of his relationship with the natives. In the course of his duties, Sam clashed with the American Secretary of War, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun chided Houston for dressing as a Cherokee at a meeting. More significantly, a legal inquiry into Houston's administration of supplies for the Cherokee was begun. No evidence turned up any wrongdoing, but Houston was still offended by this treatment. He resigned from the Army in 1818. This would not be the last time that Sam Houston's sympathy for Native Americans in general, and the Cherokee in particular, would cause him to clash with the officials in Washington. Looking for a new line of work, Houston became a lawyer. (laughs) That seemed to be the thing to do. How many lawyers were there in Tennessee? There's a million lawyers in Tennessee. Uh, enough that they could afford to send many of them to Texas. <laughs> what do you want to be? Lumberjack? Well, apparently the main... I'll be a the, lawyer. Yeah, the main, the main like, money-raising, like, the main uh, source of income for many people was debt and 
uh, land speculation. So I guess you need a lot of lawyers for that. Apparently. (laughs) After studying at the office of Judge James Trimble, he passed the bar exam in Nashville. He then opened a practice in Lebanon, Tennessee, but was appointed the local prosecutor in Nashville in 1818. Likely because of his military experience, he was also given a command in the state militia. Houston continued as a prosecutor for several years. Then in 1822, at the young age of only 29, he was elected as a United States congressman for Tennessee. Houston was a firm supporter of his mentor, Andrew Jackson. Many considered him Jackson's protege, and they shared many views despite the vast differences in their ideas about how Native Americans should be treated. Houston's career as a congressman for Tennessee lasted from 1823 to 1827, and he turned down the opportunity to run for re-election in 1827. Instead of running for Congress again, Houston ran for an office that would keep him closer to home. In 1827, he won the election for governor of Tennessee, beating both Congressman Newton Cannon and former Governor Willie Blount. He intended to run for re-election in 1829, but personal issues would ensure that didn't happen. In January of that year, he had married Eliza Allen, the 19-year-old daughter of the well-connected planter, Colonel John Allen. Their marriage was very short-lived. She left him soon after the wedding. Privately, she told some that Sam sustained the, quote, dreadful injury of emasculation in the Creek War of 1814. Later scholarship has inferred that she simply had been pressured into a political marriage by her wealthy family, though Houston seemed to have been genuinely in love with her. Houston was a known drinker at the time, and rumors of alcoholism and infidelity were also bandied about as explanations for the separation. Neither Sam nor Eliza ever publicly discussed the reason for the separation, and speculation was rampant, largely focused on the idea that Eliza was in love with another man. Due to these embarrassing accusations, Houston resigned his office rather than to run again. Nonetheless, Houston seemed to have cared about his wife's reputation and refused to allow any disparagement of her by his supporters. With nowhere else to turn, of course, Houston went west to return to the Cherokee in Arkansas Territory. Chief John Jolly officially adopted Houston and made him a member of the tribe. He married John Jolly's niece, a woman named Tiana Rogers, in a traditional Cherokee ceremony. Unlike his previous wife, Tiana was in her mid-thirties and was already a widow with two children from her previous marriage. Sam and Tiana lived together for several years, although he had not legally divorced Eliza Allen. In fact, that wouldn't happen until 1837. As proof that Eliza's accusations about the reasons for her separation were unfounded, he and Tiana had a child, a daughter named Margaret Houston, in 1830. Though not an elected official, Houston was still interested in politics and the public good. In 1830 and 1833, Houston visited the nation's capital to represent the Cherokee and other Native American tribes and expose abuses and frauds perpetrated by the government. Despite his impassioned defense of his adopted people, little changed. But Houston's presence in Washington did allow enemies of his mentor, President Andrew Jackson, to use him as a pawn in their plans. In April 1832, in a speech on the floor of Congress, anti-Jacksonian Congressman William Stanberry of Ohio made accusations against Houston. He accused Houston of being in league with John Van Fossen and Congressman Robert S. Rose. The three men had been on a contract to provide supplies to the various tribes who were being relocated west of the Mississippi by Jackson's Indian Removal Act of 1830. 
Given Houston's relationship with Native Americans, it is hard to imagine that there was anything unethical about his behavior toward them, and the attack was likely entirely politically motivated. Houston wrote several letters to Stanbury about this accusation, but the congressman refused to answer any of them. Wanting satisfaction, Houston confronted Stanbury on Pennsylvania Avenue and beat him over the head with a hickory cane. To defend himself, Congressman Stanbury drew one of his pistols, but the gun misfired. As might be expected, Houston was arrested for this assault. During his trial, he hired Francis Scott Key, yes, that Francis Scott Key, as his lawyer, and pled self-defense. Given the circumstances, this was a fairly dubious plea, and unsurprisingly, he was found guilty. Thanks to his highly placed friends, including future President James K. Polk, his only punishment was a light reprimand. Not satisfied by this result, Stanbury filed civil charges against Houston. Needless to say, Sam was found liable and assessed $500 in damages. You could all see he had a gun. This, this was also a segment on um, the entertaining television show Drunk History. Houston's political reputation was seriously impacted by the publicity surrounding the Stanbury affair. Rather than pay this judgment, Houston made the fateful decision to leave the U.S. for Mexico. He asked Tiana to go with him on his voluntary exile to Texas, but she refused. Instead, she chose to stay with her children at their trading post and cabin. Houston would find himself alone in Texas, ready to make a new life for himself. Destiny would come to him in his new home. Well, yeah, so early on in his life, he Sam Houston was established as a guy who um, didn't really take anything from anybody. No. Well, well, I'm always amazed, like, at the story of Sam Houston of, like, he has no, no, they live in a log cabin in the woods. He builds a school. (laughs) He has, like, no education. He's like, I don't like it here. I'm going to go live live with the Indians for a couple of years. And, you know, I'll just come back and get some some supplies. Yeah, I'm not getting enough out of school, so I'll just read the classics and teach myself. Yeah. He was definitely very much a self-made man. But um, it's quite literally a self-made. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go raise myself in the but, woods. I'll see you in five years. But I think that you know, there's there's connotations to. There's a very famous. Uh, there's a famous, very famous book uh, biography of Houston called The Raven. The author Marquis James uh, talks about the connotations of what the Raven means to the Cherokee people, and and uh, the Raven was a was a mythological figure and a very highly spiritual uh, figure in the Cherokee belief system. And it and it spoke to like early in his life he had this character of determination, of destiny, of drive, even from the early age as a teenager. He and, also had a second Cherokee name as well. Right, he had a later Cherokee name. So the period when he lived with Tiana, his other name was Big Drunk, uh, because <laughs> he did he he fell into the bottle after the 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 collapse of his political career. But up until that point, this man was like groomed to be. Like we talk about, like Hillary Clinton being groomed to be like the next. Yeah, person. well, I mean, he was he was friends and yeah. um, the protege of Andrew Jackson, Old Hickory. He yeah. was uh, right. No, yeah, was, is yeah. That right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was on the fast track. He was on. Well, the thing he is, was he it, was friends with James K. Polk, another future president. I mean, he was he was literally like they were saying after he got reelected to governor again, then his next step was going to be president. So it makes me wonder: was there just like? 14 people alive at this time in history. <laughs> Is that it? Are there just 14 really significant people walking around? Because you go, how can one person live? Um, I don't want to call it a charmed life because there was 
pain and tragedy and strife and and bigamy and being <laughs> shot being shot in the crotch by, by an arrow <laughs> like like uh you know i mean all we the only equivalent thing we have to that today is america's funniest videos like yeah. a, a misplaced football but he's a man of destiny like it, yeah. it just you read this and you're like this this reads like some kind of of novel like he's yeah. just a man of destiny who who pulled himself up by his bootstraps and then he made all these these connections and he just happened to be in the right place at the right time but yeah. he had well, such grit and character right it's like you, there's very much a thread of he's destined for greatness and at first it seems like that greatness will be on the national stage in Washington but his own choices and circumstances pushed him to go elsewhere and he just ended mm-hmm. up finding that destiny in right. Texas you know when he went off to war his uh, in 1812 his mother told him she gave him the the old Spartan uh, statement of come come back with your shield or on it. You know, come back with honor. Do not return a man who turned your back on the enemy. Yeah, but I, I, there's that part of Sam and Houston, so, yeah. but there's also the part of like, it would be the the whole thing with the fine is like, and him like, well, I'm just going to, to Mexico. It'd be like, honey, you got a parking ticket. We're going to Mexico. Well, so there's some interesting there's some interesting theories about that too. That that going to Texas wasn't necessarily just I'm just going to go to Texas. Um, H. W. Brand's book Lone Star Nation talks about that there is significant evidence that he may have been sent to Texas by Jackson. I've read I've read yeah. that, and I remember thinking like this this feels now this has turned into like a like a nefarious conspiracy plot. Right. Well, and it wasn't necessarily that he was sent there to bring Texas into the United States. It was, this was just kind of a natural thing that was happening, that people were going there, that it was becoming more and more American in character. And, you know, some theories just are simple as go to Texas and go to Texas and check it out. See right back. He stayed in correspondence with Jackson the entire time before and after. So he was a confidant of Andrew Jackson. So there's entirely possible that it was innocent or it could have been something more. I, I think I want to go back a little bit to also the nature of his character. Um, we talked about it like later in his life and we'll get into this, the things that he's done, like the steps that he took were contrary in a lot of ways to what many people were thinking and saying at various points in his life. And that started early with, I don't want to work in the store. I'm going to go off and live with the Cherokees. General Jackson tells me not to go back into battle. I'm going to go back into battle. Uh, I'm, I'm my best friend and mentor has a, has a position on the Indians that I don't agree with. And I'll stand up and say, I don't agree with it point blank. So he, he was not ashamed at all and afraid at all of completely saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. If he didn't like what he was going to do or what he was asked to do, he just didn't do it. I, I did think it was interesting. Um, you know, comparing Texas icons, um, Sam Houston gets shot in the crotch with an arrow, um, goes back and volunteers to go fight some more, and then he gets shot, and, you know, okay, I'm done. I'm a disabled veteran, as opposed to Jim Bowie, who probably would never even have left the battlefield at that point. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, there's there's a lot of stories about that. He was Houston was found on the battlefield and carried back, and then found again when he was shot down. He's so, very good at getting shot. Well, he, so I mean, they thought he was dead. They left him in yeah. a they left him in a field with a bunch of other wounded soldiers and who were and dead and corpses because they thought he was just going to die, and he re, he recovered. So he's a tough dude. Well, I'm looking forward to now talking about Sam Houston's exploits in Texas, 
uh, and I'm hopeful that we'll learn where he gets that jaunty hat that he wears in all the movies. <laughs> yes, and I'm looking forward to finding out how they transform his corpse into a giant stone statue. Giant. Yeah, uh, I, I think the appropriate term is golem. Golem, <laughs> yes. It's the Sam Houston golem. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaw with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank our friend and contributor, James Abendroth, for helping us research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press or read his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. So you love the show? Tell everyone you know and leave a review on iTunes because that's what helps us to find new listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast and become a come-and-take-it ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.